Today's scripture lesson comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. Let us listen for the word of the Lord. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up to the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. These passages, this passages read, these verses, are known as the Beatitudes. They come at the beginning of a long series of passages that we are familiar with called the Sermon on the Mount. They are the centerpiece of Christian teaching and preaching in so many ways. One person describes them as the radical reconfiguring of the world, this Sermon of the Mount, where the first shall be last and we are to be salt and light and a list of blesseds that is so many verses long. So I have a confession that when I sat down and read this passage on Monday, I wasn't really amazed by them. Instead, instead I sent up a wail to my husband and said, Michael, the Beatitudes are boring. <laughs> and then on Wednesday, after I'd read them a bit more, I cried to the Alex office across the way, Oh my gosh, the Beatitudes are overwhelming. <laughs> These are different ways we can approach the Bible often as well. We can read these scriptures and see them as almost as catchphrases, as cliches that we've heard a hundred times before. We can go through and go, yep, yep, heard this, got this, what next? Or we can also see it as a to-do list of social justice needs, things that we are supposed to be aware of in our everyday life, and the list can be overwhelming. We have to help those who mourn, help those who are poor, help those who hunger and thirst. So where do we even start? Part of the problem with reading the Beatitudes is that we see them through a modern lens. We see them as catchphrases and cliches because we've heard these words many times before. And so I think it's important to dig deeper into a single word. This is something that we have done for the last couple weeks in sermons, taking a single verse or a single word or phrase and holding it up almost as a prism to the light to see what it reflects on the different dimensions of discipleship. And so today I really want to focus on the word blessed. 
this is not a simple word, and we only approach it as simple when we forget one very important fact about these Beatitudes. They are about God. And whenever we come to God in the scriptures or in our own lives, it doesn't take much to realize that things are never boring. We throw the word blessed around, though, a lot in our culture. We say, oh, we are so blessed, or that was such a blessing, or we even use that magnificent southern phrase I've learned that has so many meanings in three little words. Bless her heart. (laughs) We do all this without a second thought. Sometimes translations use the word happy instead of blessed, as in happy are those. Yet, substituting happiness for blessing is also problematic. It not only does it drop any connotation of worship and God, but in our current American culture, we love to talk about happiness all the time. Every month, another study or project promises the solution to happiness. We can find a new book or a TV show or a 999 conference by motivational speakers that promises us the speaker, the secret to be happy. We construct formulas that make us think that if we do X, we'll get happiness, or if we do Y to the Z degree, then blessing will pour out of our lives. Be meek and pure, and you will be able to purchase this product called Blessed. No wonder the Beatitudes can seem boring if we read them now and in this way. So if we read the beginning of this Sermon on the Mount as a formula for getting a happy life full of self-improvement, well, then Oprah and reality shows covered this a long time ago with a lot more razzle-dazzle. We don't have to just have this image of a dusty rabbi sitting talking to a crowd of unwashed people. There are a lot more shiny examples of how to get happiness out there. But this is why we must reorient our understanding of the word blessing. It is not just a label we stick on something when we are relieved that we aren't, at least we aren't the person next to us. I'm so blessed. It is not a quick and easy adjective to explain how the world lines up with everything that we expected it to be. That was such a blessing. Declaring that something is a blessing is declaring that God is present and here In this place, God is at work. And that is an earth-shaking, fire-blazing claim. You don't have to go far in the Bible to know that when God shows up on the page, things are never boring, and things never end up in the place you expect. So instead of seeing these verses as catchphrases, what if instead we tried to see them as signposts that point to the kingdom of God. One writer describes the Beatitudes as the preamble to the Sermon on the Mount, and the Sermon on the Mount is the whole constitution of God's kingdom. And the constitution of God's kingdom is very different from our own. So in order to kind of dig into this word, I want to look into the word that we translate as blessed. The word that is translated from the Greek is makarios, and it has been seven years since I had ancient Greek, so I apologize for the pronunciation. 
But this word is used in ancient literature to signal a highest stage of happiness and well-being, such as the gods might enjoy. I emailed a friend who teaches ancient Greek, and she pointed out that those who are named Makarios are often the recipient of divine favor. Ancient Greek literature uses the root word makar as a euphemism for the dead, and the early church fathers used it to write about the martyrs. And then we also look at the English translation of blessing. We can see that it too comes with an interesting history. The Latin benediciri means to praise and to extol. It's where we get the words for benediction and beatitudes. But uh, translators who are taking that Latin word also decided to use an old English word of bletzian. And bletzian can mean to make happy. It can be associated with some root words that mean bliss. But it also means to make holy, to consecrate. Bletzian is also related to the word blood in some, by some scholarly etymological explo- explorations because to make some things holy used to mean offering a sacrifice of blood. So blood and blessing are related to bletzian. So as we start to dig into this word that we translate as blessed, we realize that it isn't about being happy-go-lucky or checking the boxes of some book. It come, this word comes saturated with connotations of life and death, sacrifice and worship. We can easily forget that it ha- comes with these layers of meaning. Declaring that something is blessing actually declares that this right here is holy, this right here is where God is doing something. Be blessed is to be a recipient of divine favor, and that is a profound statement of faith. When we read these verses and we see Jesus pointing to the signposts of God's kingdom, he is not pointing to people and places that we'd expect. He is pointing to people and places that know the joy of God's presence and God's work in the world, But these people and places do not often live up to our social standards. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who are merciful, meek, and those who hunger and thirst. And there is another thing that we must confront when we read these words. These seem awfully simple sometimes, taking huge issues of the world and collapsing them into single lines about grief and violence and hunger and thirst. So is Jesus out of touch here? Is he just using some pie-in-the-sky rhetoric to lead this crowd? We hear him say, theirs is the kingdom of heaven, while he sits on a hill looking down on people. Is this some patronizing first-century Palestinian version of buck up, it'll all be fine? In a simple, boring word, no. No, Jesus is not just appearing on top of this mountaintop, talking down to people. The writer of Matthew tells us immediately before this passage, Jesus was going throughout Galilee, teaching and curing every disease and sickness among the people. As Alec pointed out, he is being the opposite of out of touch. He is sitting there, interacting with people at very close quarters, 
Jesus has not stopped listening, teaching, and reaching out to touch the people since he came out of the desert and began his ministry. The author writes, Crowds came to him, crowds filled with those afflicted by diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, and paralytics. And these crowds continued to follow him. So Jesus is perched there, looking at all these people with whom he has walked, with whom he has loved with a healing touch. He is looking out at all of them and perhaps is surrounded by the memories of their wails and aching groans, their weeping and their gnashing of teeth. Perhaps some of them are still sending up cries. Even as he speaks, crowds are rarely silent. There Jesus is, and there the people are. And he looks and takes a seat, pulls in a deep breath, and sends forth the words, Blessed. Blessed are those, and blessed are you. These words of Jesus send shivers down the spine of the gospel stories. These words, this belief that God is at work among those who do not measure up to the standards we're so used to, this belief fills the scripture. These words are unearthing a new understanding of life and death, of time and power. Indeed, these words resonate to our very city of Richmond, to a street preacher named Cassandra. For several months, I've seen this woman on my morning runs on Franklin Street. She sits on the stoop of the public library in a green winter coat and a tan cap. She stands out to me because she sits there and loudly proclaims things you don't usually hear from a street preacher. I don't know her full story, and I don't know all that is going on within her, but I do know that her words stuck with me the first time I heard them and in the weeks following. She would declare, I am a beloved child of God. I am blessed, a temple made for the Holy Spirit. God is blessing me. God is here. I'm not making this up. These were the words that she would declare each morning sitting on that stoop. So this past week, as you heard, we just finished hosting Caritas, where over 100 people volunteered. And on Tuesday, some of the 20 and 30-somethings here at Second served the meal. I saw the street preacher in our dining room waiting for her food. And I went up and introduced myself, and that's when I learned her name was Cassandra, is Cassandra. She recognized me as well. We talked some more about her preaching, She said she got the call to preach 37 years ago. How do you know what to preach, I asked her. She said, I don't. I just say what the Holy Spirit tells me. Looking at this woman, one might see someone who sits on a sidewalk because she has no place to go. Yet, if you listen to her, you will hear someone who is making an incredible statement of faith about her fortune in the eyes of Christ. She believes that that place, that concrete slab on Franklin Street, is a place for the presence of God. More incredibly, she is declaring that her person, a person marked marginal in so many ways by our society, is yet a holding place for the power of the Holy Spirit. She believes this, 
And even now, I'm sure some morning this week, she will be out there declaring herself to be blessed. Blessed are they, rejoice and be glad. These are the words we read this morning. Jesus is not trying to reduce the stuff of the world to some boring sentences. He's not trying to collapse hard issues into a simple catchphrase. He is taking the hard stuff of the world and lifting it to our eyes and saying, this is real. This matters. What is hurting and hungering and struggling now matters. But this, this is not the end. This is not the only story worth telling. There is more. There is God's kingdom, and you can help proclaim this good news. One scholar writes, The point of the Sermon on the Mount, and the Beatitudes in particular, is a summons to live in the present in a way that will make sense in God's promised future. It may seem upside down, but we are called to believe with great daring. We are called to believe that this ordering is, in fact, the right way up. Jesus is asking us to try it and see. Try it and see. Where do we even start except to just simply try and see how God is at work in the world? Try and see where we can take the status quo by surprise Try and see where God's blessing might shatter our boredom with holiness. Try and see where the struggles of the world make us shed the skin of our expectations. And then, emptied of all of our assumptions, we can begin to build lives that surprise us with moments of blessing. We can even try and see where a city sidewalk might become a place of gospel telling. One of our church members had a little moment of gospel telling in December. She might not have thought it was a big deal, but she told me the story and it stuck with me. I asked her permission to share it. It was a busy day. She was trucking away at her to-do list in the chaos of Christmas shopping. Then a man stopped right in front of her, looked her in the face, and shouted, Jesus loves you! He shouted at her, probably trying to get a reaction. Well, Betty Dickey reacted, but probably not in the way he expected. Instead of ducking her face or running away, Betty looked right back at him and said loudly, well, Jesus loves you too. She doesn't think that was quite what he was expecting. (laughs) With those words, Betty was doing the same thing as Cassandra. She was marking a place of blessing She turned a situation that could easily have been filled with confrontation and annoyance. and She turned it into a place that spoke of the presence of God. She declared Christ's love for this man, whether he wanted to hear it or not. (laughs) Jesus points to the blessedness of things in these Beatitudes so that we might have the chance to try and see the world the way he sees it. And this is not a boring thing to do. This takes courage and faith. 
and the ability to step forward a little bit in risk and proclaim back to someone who just shouted in your face that Christ loves you too. Last summer, I had the delight of hearing Father Greg Boyle speak at a conference. Greg Boyle is a Jesuit priest who has spent over three decades working with the gangs in Los Angeles. His ministry is based around the idea of Christ's radical love and the practical application of what this means on the ground in the daily lives of these young kids he's serving. Two things he says often are, nothing stops a bullet like a job, and he has never seen someone join a gang who had any hope left. So over the years, in order to build hope, in order to give jobs, his ministry has led to the incorporation of Homeboy Industries, which works a cafe and other adventures to give former gang members paying jobs. There's counseling, there's tattoo removal, there's classes on how to be better parents, on how to manage finances. His ministry is far-reaching, emotionally taxing, and incredibly powerful. You can read many of his stories in the book Tattoos on the Heart. It is clear through his humor and humility that he deeply loves the men and women he ministers to and alongside. He calls them homies, and they call him G-Dog. Here is one story that he tells, but since he is telling a true, unvarnished story using the vocabulary of these gang members, I'm going to change a few words. Before they tore down the projects of Pico Gardens and then rebuilt them, two identifying locales within them were first playground and second playground. They were areas ostensibly for kids to play in, though the jungle gyms looked like hand-me-downs from Mogadishu, and the patch of lawn never deepened in color past yellow. Meet you at second playground was commonly heard, or they crept in at first playground and started blasting their guns was also a reoccurring refrain. On a summer night, I'm on my bike, and I settle in the heart of Second Playground. It's still light out, and soon I'm surrounded by homies from the barrio. I straddle the bike and listen to the homies bagging on each other, which is kidding one another endlessly, and truth be told, this is the main occupation of all gang members. There are eight who ultimately gather here. The banter is fast. No prisoners are taken in the insults. And in a flash, one of the homies, Minor, points up to a telephone wire perched above the apartments. Each of these playgrounds is surrounded by two-story apartments boxing in the play areas into squares. Minor points up at the telephone wire and said, Look, gee, it's an owl. Yeah, darn, says another, a stinking owl. In the projects, a third chimes in, setting our collective volume to a hush indicating that some cathedral has just been entered. Sure enough, there is the largest owl imaginable resting on this telephone wire just above Lupe's Cantillon. We stand in a single line, eyeing this anomalous creature that has chosen to visit the poorest, most owlless sector in L.A. Pigeons and mice are generally our only wildlife here. Mouths agape, the silence is maintained only briefly as the homie psycho turns to Minor with a whisper, get the gun. Nope. Gonzo intervenes. 
reaching over and touching Miner on the arm with the heft of a tribal leader. Gonzo is a shot caller for the gang. Let him be. No one wants to speak too loudly or make any sudden moves. Even when it does occur to someone in the group to say something, no one takes their eyes off the bird. It's a sign, says one. From God, says another. What's it mean, G-Dog, says Miner, the wide-eyed pup of the litter. I lean into him, but with a stage whisper so all can hear. It's God telling you to give up your weapons, love your enemies, and work for peace. Oh, man, you think all signs mean that, they say. And I think, uh-oh, they're on to me. But there we stand, as others join our vigil in the temple worship of this massive animal. Silence prevails as no church service I have ever seen commands until this astonishing owl opens its wings and takes off, suspecting, no doubt, that Psycho and his gun can't be restrained forever. And he is gone in a majestic flapping and a slow-motion gliding, disappearing from view behind the gigantic tower fronting the projects. Today, an owl, second playground. Together we breathe this all in, and it seems a paradise to us. In the projects of Pico Garden, where you'd expect to hear gunshots and bagging, there is only silence and wonder. Who has the gall to see these projects and name them a paradise? Who has the gall to see a Richmond street person and name her a temple? Who is the gall to see the struggle of this world and call it blessed? Who is the gall to see our faulty, failed little lives and call us disciples worth sitting at the feet of this teacher and declaring God's good news to the world? Jesus does. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Lord, we come to you weary, heavy laden. And you ask us to come, arise, and follow you, for you have new things to show us. Lord, fill us up with your strength and courage and enable us to try and see what your kingdom looks like in this world. In your holy name we pray. Amen.